lost in the whirlwind of Harvard Academia. This is the Bipartisan Podcast. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Bipartisan Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Swanson. I'm Luke Webster. I'm Nathan Duffloff. Guys, I think this might be the first time that we've had a full podcast crew in maybe like a month or two. It's been that long? It's been a while. I mean, we've done a lot of a lot of three-man shows. We've had a, a couple weeks off that we've that we've taken because it's just been a busy semester, but we're coming up on summer now. We're going to be able to do some more podcasts since none of us will be doing heavy classes. And I'm excited for it. We're going to start building a, a lasting podcast schedule. Um, going into today's episode, we got some fun stuff to talk about. We're going to start by talking about the census, uh, some stuff going on in the House GOP, and also worldwide distribution of vaccinations. I'm pretty excited. Let's jump right into it. First off, talking about the U.S. Census. So, as we all know, the past year has been crazy, and the U.S. Census was also counted last year, making it even harder. After myriad issues in the last year due to politics and the pandemic, the U.S. Census Bureau announced its state-level counts for the 2020 Census this morning. A state gets its seats based uh, in the House of Representatives based off its population. So whenever there's a new census, states lose and gain seats according to how population shifted in the last 10 years, and states then have to draw their congressional maps accordingly. So that's why, you know, there's only 435 seats. They're just apportioned variously throughout the United States. Seven states are losing seats next year due to stagnant population growth, include growth, not growth, including West Virginia, which is going from three districts down to two. And the squeeze marks the start of the most politically uncomfortable and unpredictable year Congress must face each decade. When new maps are drawn and redistricting, it forces veteran incumbents into retirement, turns former friends into fierce rivals, and it turns... Uh, safe seat House members into hotly contested elections. So there's a lot to be at stake here in the next 2022 midterms. And there's a lot to talk about here. First of all, how does this re- how this redistricting does and should work? And are state legislature drawn maps the solution? Or should we look at independent commissions? That's the first one I want to talk about. And I want to hear your guys' opinions. Will, you wrote this outline. So I want to go and ask you first. Yeah, so... I, I hope everybody can agree with this, that it makes no sense for legislators to draw their own maps. And, you know, when we have con- or the Constitution says that states get to draw their own maps and lines along who gets elected to Congress and what their districts look like. But the way that most states choose to do this is that whichever party controls the state legislature draws the maps. And it's just not quite right to have legislators pick their voters um, rather than the other way around, which is how it's supposed to be. So, so what a lot of states have been doing in the last two-ish cycles of, of the census when this redistricting happening happens every 10 years is ceding power from the state legislature to an independent commission. You know, I think Pennsylvania does it, like they have two Republicans, two Democrats, one you know, neutral party. California has like a fully independent commission that's not totally nonpartisan that draws the map in a fair way. Because there's ultimately no, you know, perfect algorithm for drawing a, a congressional map. But at the end of the day, an independent commission is going to better leverage the information that's out there to draw a truly fair map rather than, you know, some of the gerrymandering you'll see from Democrats and Republicans when they're in charge of state legislature. So I'm all in on independent commissions and more should be used in this cycle. Unfortunately, not 
I think it's still the majority are not going to have independent commissions. Maybe we can change that by 2030. You know, I really agree with you on that. But first, I want to see uh, Luke or Nathan, do you guys have different opinions here on uh, maybe a state legislature drawing these maps? Uh, no, I would definitely agree, Tyler, that, uh, or, and with, with Will specifically, that, you know, these independent commissions are definitely probably not a bad thing. Um, like, I understand, like, if, if, you know, say Kentucky wants to do it its own way and do it to the state legislature, I don't feel like we should be pressuring them to not, or the federal government should be doing anything to, like, pressure them not to do that. But um, I, I would agree with Will that I think that having a more balanced approach uh, to how districts are drawn uh, might help uh, better uh, better represent the people that are like in your state. You know, if you've got uh, somebody who's representing you that doesn't 100% like uh, agree with your values, then that should be something that uh, should be looked at. You know, like you don't want to have uh, somebody representing your district uh just because uh just because there there happens to be a larger majority of people of a conservative ilk or a uh, liberal ilk in your area i don't know if that makes sense but yeah so you know will i i, I totally agree with you i think that i think that these these commission these probably should be drawn up by nonpartisan commissions but uh as a little bit of insight as to why they're not so I was reading a statistic and it was from, it was from um, the, the 2018 cycle. So it wasn't for this cycle, but it was talking about how there's only like three or four states that have like a split upper house, lower house. And nearly every single state, one party has almost a supermajority in it. And so, so the argument that these states are doing, these state legislatures are rationalizing in their mind is, well, you know, if, if there are, if there are only, you know, 11% of our, of our lower body of our, of our house members are Democrats and 81% of us are Republicans or whatever the math was on that 79 or 89%. Why would we, why would we make it equal in this redistricting? Why would we make it nonpartisan whenever in Virginia, you know, there's, there's 90 Democrats and 10% Republicans, they're going to do the exact same type of gerrymandering we're going to do, or, and, and it might not even be, it might not even be that, that, um, that aggressive or that rationalized but that's that's the that's the idea it's why would we give up our competitive advantage in this state whenever other part whenever other parties not going to be willing to do that and so i think if you want to see this happen on a wide scale if you want to see all 50 states adopt a nonpartisan or a bipartisan redistricting plan i think that it has to be some sort of some sort of federal bill um that does it and it, i mean it's inherently the states the states um it's the state's rights to draw the map. I think that's a lot of in the constitution, but I think that's the only way it's gonna happen. And uh, keep in mind, um, most of these legislatures that are drawing it, whether they're urban or, or whether they're Democrat or whether they're Republican are drawing it based on based on census data. I mean, there's, there's state laws on how much deviation you can have from the population or how big the population size can be. There's even a lot of laws about um, what part of the existing district it can, it can consume. Um, and so it's like, you know, you can't just randomly go out here and grab 10 different counties or you can't split XYZ County um, because of state laws. And so I think that there are some checks and balances in place, but I think at the end of the day, it would be better if it was done uh, nonpartisanly, bipartisanly. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've Definitely all- an interesting, an interesting ahead, insight. I think, I think I agree with you, Nathan, and this is something I honestly, this could be a totally uninformed thought, 
but I'm fairly certain that in order to have federal action on it, the Supreme Court neglected to weigh in on partisan gerrymandering uh, in a case two years ago, two or three years ago. Um, so I'm fairly certain in order to change that Article Article One Section Four part of the Constitution, you would have to um, you would have to have a constitutional amendment to change that process from the states merely being able to do what they want. So just an interesting and inconclusive afterthought to what you said. Yeah, for sure. I think um, you know we're going to we're going to switch to the um, next topic shortly. Uh, but this is an, uh, an issue I'm glad we can all agree on because it definitely is one that is, is pretty egregious. Um, when you have businesses that can literally sell jewelry that are just made of the very abstract and odd designs you see in um, in different you know congressional districts across the country, both in red and blue states, uh, it's it's not a symptom of you know one party or the other wanting to be in control. It's just both parties doing their you know what they think is the best thing for their you know for their ideology to stay in power. Um, and definitely, I think you need to have either a bipartisan or an independent coalition go and actually, you know, draw uh, congressional maps that make sense. Personally, I wish everyone looked like a block, not like a, a weird snake or some kind of odd creature. Um, but of course, that'll be something that I think will take a lot of time. Maybe in the next 10 years, we'll see something big happen with it. But I think we're going to have another 10 years of very gerrymandered um, districts in the United States, which is unfortunate, and we'll we'll see in whose favor those uh, those gerrymandered districts end up falling. That said, I do want to transition to our next topic, the GOP retreat. Uh, for House Republicans at the moment, it's less about how they can win back the majority and more about how do they avoid uh, messing it up, because there's been a lot of things going on over the past uh, few weeks, some of them we talked about. Uh, that's the question on the minds of GOP lawmakers as they huddle in Orlando for their three-day annual legislative retreat, the Republican conference's first such gathering since the coronavirus shut down the country and their first since former President Donald Trump lost the White House. At the retreat, lawmakers are working on a variety of policy initiatives on key issues and also attempting to avoid political tripwires from internal divisions over the former president trying to influence them from Mar-a-Lago to the fringe elements in their ranks that threatened to swamp their agenda. Democrats are trying to fan those flames across the aisle by yoking the entire GAP to QAnon at every turn and elevating some of the conference's most divisive personalities, such as freshman representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican from Georgia. Meanwhile, history and redistricting are on the GOP's side. Traditionally, the party in power loses ground in the midterm elections. Sorry for the Democrats. And additionally, the redistricting we previously discussed is estimated to give Republicans about a three and a half seat advantage from where they currently, or a three to five seat advantage from where they currently stand. So will Republicans take back the House in 2022? What could happen in the meantime to change things? What are our thoughts? And I wanna to go to some of our Republican friends here first. Uh, Luke, I know you were down in Georgia during the special election. So I'd like to hear what you think as somebody who's been on the ground before and who has kind of that experience working uh, you know, with people in the party. Well, so from what I can tell you on the ground, uh, there are, it's a very, very mixed bag inside the Republican party. I think Nathan would agree that there's kind of a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of, there's a lot of conflict around how much, uh, influence, uh, former president Trump should have on the, on the party. Um, personally, I would rather him have less influence. I think he were a lot of the things he did, uh, public relations wise really hurt the character of the Republican party. Um, but going, but I guess my, I, I would agree with uh, them kind of 
circling the wagons as it were to uh, try to figure out how not to lose. Um, like you said, typically uh, the, the party in power loses seats, but um, I've really felt like Republicans and Democrats have been kind of in a, in a fight to see who can shoot themselves in the foot more going into these midterms. I mean, it's like every time that Democrats do something that maybe isn't the best thing in the world, Republicans immediately do something that like shifts the focus back to them. And I'm like, oh my God, you're kidding me right now. Um, but the, I think that it will be interesting to see how they spin things going forward. Um, I think probably their best, their best fan of attack is to, uh, you know, kind of point out, point at some of these policies that Biden has had that have been a little bit more progressive. Um, because the, I, I don't know if this is your all's feeling, but I feel like uh, Joe Biden, when he was elected, was kind of elected as, you know, a return to normalcy. It was not elected as a president that was going to make a bunch of change. And here we are, we've been spending, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars on top of our normal budget. We've been uh, making some policy proposals that I don't think that, that are progressive. Uh, and I feel like some people would argue a little bit too aggressive. So I think that there is definitely the movement on the ground. Uh, if if uh, things continue the way that they are for uh, Republicans to make up some ground here in November. I don't know, Nathan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so, you know, I think that Trump's going to be the specter hanging over the Republican Party for the next 10 years, almost likening to what, what Gerald Ford was after after um, 1976, I believe it was. But, um, you know, he's, he's always going to have the power of the president. I think that that's something that Republicans are going to have to have to reckon with, rationalize with. Uh, where's his role in the parties, his role as a fundraiser, his role as a thought leader? Um, you know, and I think that that's going to be figured out pretty quick. I think that after 22, Trump's going to endorse a batch of candidates. Worst case scenario, Trump endorses a batch of candidates. The RNC endorses a batch of candidates. And they, they fight over each other. We don't win the House because they were arguing. Um, but but I, think, I think that one of the biggest things to look at is, is just the difference in the GOP in the Democrat Party within the House of Representatives. And so there was, there was a, 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 big, a big thing, a big news story, at least on the conservative side of, of the world last week. Uh, during during the, um, the George Floyd verdict, before the verdict came out, Maxine Waters said some, some pretty controversial stuff. A lot of people jumped on it. Um, and, you know, personally, if, if a Republican would have said something on that way, you know, I'd distance from the Republican. I wouldn't, I would not at all support the Republican. I don't think GOP House leadership would either. But, but all of the Senate Democrats defended and circled the wagon around right or wrong, they defended her. Um, and that's what the GOP does not have right now. Um, the, the Democrats are unified. They're, they're working towards some, some form of goal. I don't think that they know what the goal is, but they know that they need to stand in their ranks. And the Republicans are definitely not willing to do that. And so that I, I think it's going to take some, some form of actual leadership. I think that it's going to take you know, Mike McCarthy or Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise getting, getting booted out, or it's going to take um, some form of leadership change or some form of major, major political reckoning. Like we, we take the house with a huge majority and it's like, oh my goodness, we have a, we have a, the ability to govern now. Um, but I, I think that, I think that the GOP is still finding itself. And I think the longer they take to find themselves, the, the worse it's going to be in 22. 
And if I can add to that, Nathan, you know, I'm I'm worried that if if I if Republicans do take back the House, that we're essentially going to have what happened uh, with uh, Paul Ryan's House, where we had the House and then we don't actually ever end up doing anything with it, and we're just going to lose it again. Um, so I I think that you're right. I think we need a plan. The Republican Party needs a plan going forward, and we kind of need to, you know, choose a formation and stay in it. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with what you guys are saying. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, Will, I want you to go ahead and give me your thoughts on the other side of the aisle. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, I think what you said, Nathan, about division, like intra-Republican divisions being a huge issue is very true. And honestly, I think you'd agree with me, justified in a lot of the worst instances. Um, I think it would be a very bad thing for the party to circle its wagons around Marjorie Taylor Greene's Jewish space laser, space laser thing. Um, so I mean I, I I agree with the observation and I think the only way it's 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 kind of it's a little bit of a paradox where oh in order to get more populist wide support and you know get a lot of people involved and really have that anti-establishment message you got to embrace that Trump-esque wing um, but then in order to actually govern you need more of the Paul Ryan Kevin McCarthy types where it's not it's not sexy it's not populist it's not going to get people involved. Um, you know, but I, I hope for the sake of the national debate that that policy wing wins out and that it doesn't just end up, end up being a bunch of, you know, only defining themselves by cultural, cultural war issues and Democrat bad. Because um, at the end of the day, the Democratic messaging, I think, is very consistent, very tight. COVID bad, recession bad, help economy good. Um, and they'll just keep beating that drum until 2022. And whoever can stay more organized, I think, is likely to win. And I, if I had to, if I had to make a call about what's going to happen 18 months from now, I would say Democrats retain the majority. But we'll see if I'm right. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I, I have some thoughts on this too. You know, you watch um, both parties definitely are are straying. I would say more to their extremes. Um, you know, Biden, as somebody who ran as a moderate and ran as you know somebody who wasn't trying to make fundamental change, is still very progressive for uh, you know the the moderate he was made up to be in the primaries. He's done a lot of big federal spending with the, um, the American Recovery Plan, or I think that's what it was called. Um, and he wants to have this huge um, infrastructure, you know, investment. And he's he's doing a lot of things on climate. He's really, um, you know, a not a, you know, a full on socialist, but he's he's putting out a lot of good policies there that will are very progressive. And you see a lot of the Republican Party, you know, just kind of arguing for argument's sake, in some cases, not all, um, but then also kind of shooting themselves in the foot with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Matt Gates, you know, all these these bad things going on right now. And I think, you know, if you're if you're the Republican Party, you definitely need to get your your horses in order um, before uh, next fall, because you have, you know, I think the, the leadership in the Republican Party, besides Mitch McConnell, is, is fairly um, lacking, I guess I should say. You know, there's no like real standout people who really feel like this is somebody who can lead a successful party to win a lot of elections. Um, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done. Of course, history is in their favor and redistricting might end up being in their favor as well. But I don't think that by any means hands it to them, especially if Joe Biden continues to be as popular as he is now. I mean, he's still sitting at a 54.5% a approval rating in the last, you know, range of polls and his disapproval ratings only at about 40 and a half percent. So if, you know, people keep liking Joe Biden and liking the things that he's doing, it's very likely he could just, you know, keep control of the uh, of Congress just based on the on the amount of people that like him. Uh, so I'm really interested to see how the Republican Party kind of 
goes over the course of this year? Are they going to become the party of QAnon and kind of succumb to the Democratic Party's labeling of them? Are they going to rise above that and return to a more principled conservatism, uh, more moderate style of, of politics? Or will we just kind of see the same old bumbling from both sides? Uh, I'm really not sure. But uh, I am excited to go on to our next topic here. For the sake of time, we're going to move on to talk about worldwide vaccine distribution. So let's get started with this one. The U.S. has vaccinated almost half of its population at this point. Across the rest of the world, though, mass vaccination is still in the distant future. India, where cases have been exponentially rising for weeks, has only vaccinated 2% of its population. This week, the Biden administration announced it would share 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine with other countries. Uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine has not yet been approved by the FDA, so it's not really able to be used here anyway. And it's also going to be sending raw materials to India for it to produce more inoculations. So big thing there for uh, worldwide vaccinations. In addition, many are calling for vaccine makers to make the patents behind vaccines publicly available. Proponents of the move argue that it will speed up global vaccination progress, while detractors, chief among them drug companies themselves, argue that opening up the intellectual property behind mRNA vaccines to economic competitors like China could weaken the U.S. So this is definitely a, a very good example of, you know, humane diplomacy. Uh, we'll call this vaccine diplomacy. And I want to know our, our thoughts here. Um, Nathan, I haven't started with you yet. So Nathan, I want you to go ahead and, and start off with your thoughts on this topic here. What are you, what are you thinking? Well, absolutely. There's definitely a difference in the vaccines that have been um, instituted in the U.S. versus, you know, the rest of the world. Um, and I think, and I think that's because, um, well, <laughs> Um, first of all, the rollout method has not been nearly as extensive as it has in the U.S. Um, the U.S. has done a really good job and has really, really been trying to get folks vaccinated. A lot of these other countries, like you said, don't have resources. Um, and, and also, there are, while COVID's really hit the U.S., it's a, we're a first world country that has really good access to medicine. Other countries have a lot more, a lot more going on than we really do. I mean, Africa has malaria. AIDS epidemics. And so a lot of times in our minds, while COVID seems like, you know, a huge deal here, which it is, it's, it's the biggest thing going on. In a lot of these countries, I think that uh, maybe not even statistically, just the presence of mind, it kind of takes the back burner. It's not nearly as big of a concern um, as some of these other diseases. I think that's probably why there hasn't been nearly as much emphasis from these countries to get the vaccine. Um, but in terms of the intellectual property, I mean, it's, it's tricky business. Um, Obviously, you want the obviously the drug 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 companies, you know they're, they they did it all out of the goodness of their heart, not at all for the economic incentive of creating the vaccine. And so, um, you definitely don't want this to be about you know economic incentive. You don't want it to be well. The drug companies are going to lose money. We should not go public with the IPO. But the the concern about China being able to make it is is a really really big factor. Um, and, you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, I'd like to say that I'm a very good-willed person. I'd say, you know, I, I hope everyone in the world makes the COVID vaccines. But at the same time, um, I mean, we're really, we're really dealing with, with intellectual property uh, arguments with China. We're dealing with uh, Chinese aggression uh, militarily. We're dealing with a lot of things. And so I can definitely understand why there is a reluctance to, to you know, make that IPO public. Yeah, if I can jump in here. I, I... Totally understand the hesitancy. First off, I think it is definitely important that the U.S. Uh, start handing out vaccines as, to as many countries as possible as quick as we can. 
our you know rollout has been fantastic. I know I'm halfway done with my vaccination schedule. Can't wait to get my second shot. A lot of my friends are the same. And uh, it's definitely time that we do as much as we can to help other countries get to where we are now so that we can collectively as a global community come and start to shut down this virus and turn the page on COVID into the next chapter. Um, but that said, I totally understand um, wanting to keep the patents uh, private because there is definitely you know, a huge competition we have going on with China. It's not really a cold war, but it is one where we are you know, very much trying to stay ahead of them economically and not let them, you know, take over and, you know, a patent for or understanding the process of mRNA patents and those kind of things would be a huge bonus um, for Chinese companies. So that said, I, I'm not a huge fan of the economic incentive. I totally understand it at the same time. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't do anything to go and help other countries. I know um, India is in major need of supplies of vaccines and many other things. And that's where the United States, I think, could really, you know, go in the world and be the force for good that a lot of people, um, you know, still have in their minds of America being the the world's, uh, the world's hero in times of need, you know, that's, that's exactly what we're here for, you know, instead of going off and having our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, let's, let's go and have them, you know, distribute vaccines across the world. I just, <laughs> I just, but like, we could have something where we're going off and, you know, leading the world and vaccine distribution, which would give us huge points. Um, that's just kind of my thoughts on it. But I, I am really excited to see us giving those 60 million doses to India. Uh, Luke or Will, what are your thoughts here? I mean, I, I really think it's too little too late. I think that the, the vaccine nationalism preceding the, the distribution of the vaccine is going to be, history is not going to look kindly on it the way that rich nations more or less hoarded vaccines before they were even able to be distributed. And, you know, even in the India requested um, aid on April 16th, and it didn't arrive until April 26th, and several other countries were already distributing it. So I, I mean, to me, it's not a massive step or nothing to be heavily applauded. Um, I do think that, you know, the idea of making vaccine access or making the vaccine patent accessible to anybody in the world is an absolute no-brainer. And you really, the only people that you see arguing against that are the companies themselves because they're the ones with the economic incentive. So it, it makes all the sense in the world. There are, I mean, there's an effort of 60 plus countries to amend the World Trade Organization's uh, Intellectual Property Treaty, the biggest multilateral um, intellectual property treaty currently in force for an, for, for an emergency amendment to include COVID vaccines to be accessible to the entire world. Um, because right now we're only at 43% global production capacity to make all these vaccines. That's that's not acceptable. So I think that, that those long-term measures need to get pushed for. But in the meantime, you know, there's also, it's not just Pfizer and Moderna that can produce these vaccines. There are dozens of other companies in the West that can produce COVID vaccines and simply cannot because they don't have access to the patent and the, the recipe, so to speak, for it. Um, so there, there's an interesting issue. I'm not sure how much has gone on in America, but there's a couple of cases in Canada I read about where um, companies are petitioning to get compulsory licenses to the patent, where they say, look, we have the ability to make it, or a drug maker too. If you just tell us how it's made, we can add another 20 million doses to be exported around the world. And I mean, I think that's a short-term measure that makes a lot of sense too, um, to have other biotech companies say, hey, we can make the vaccine, give us the recipe, we'll make it. And then while at the same time pushing for that worldwide change um, to get the patents available everywhere they need to go. Yeah, you definitely make some good points there, Will. Uh, Luke, do you have any thoughts you wanna add? 
Uh, nothing that uh, most of you guys haven't already said. You know, I, I would agree that we do need to be uh, getting these vaccines out to other countries. You know, I, I think that's been one of our biggest failures uh, as uh as the uh, as a as a developed nation as as a global uh, power, I think that the United States not giving these vaccines out um, is really is really hurting, and it really does hurt me to see that people there are people in the United States that are actively you know avoiding taking the vaccine or saying that they don't want to take it. And then we have, you know, nations like India or, or any other nation that is, you know, desperate for vaccines and we just have them and people aren't taking them. So I, I guess that's what I, I, I'm most upset about is that there are a lot of people that are taking our, uh, you know, this incredible uh, feat of uh, engineering and of uh, medicine and science of, you know, producing a vaccine in, in a little under a year uh for a novel uh virus and i just i i i'm that's the thing that makes me the most upset is that people i feel like are not um recognizing how lucky we are to you know have access to those vaccines yeah sure that's that's totally a, you know a fair point to make uh i really can't wait for as many people to get vaccinated as possible i just want to be able to go and you know walk out in public again and you know enjoy myself with other people and have people not worry about being, you know, suffering and, and dying in hospitals. And, you know, it's, it's a chapter I think we all are ready to move on from. And, um, you know, whatever way we can do it, the fastest way that's possible is the way that we should be doing it. And uh, I'm really hoping that this uh, initial move by the Biden administration to give a lot of doses to India is one that will continue on um, over the course of the year to include greater amounts to more countries. That said, we will see. Uh, we are also out of time. We've been going for about half an hour now, which is how long we always go for. So we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Bipartisan Podcast. If you enjoyed, be sure to go to bipartisanpost.com, read our articles, find more part, uh, podcasts, and follow us on social media at Post Bipartisan on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening, and thank you guys for having a great discussion, and I will talk to you all next week. Goodbye.